Psychology in Seattle. So, Berto, I want to talk with you today about something that's quite personal to you, I think. Okay. Which is about your attachment style, your attachment injuries, and also how that might have led to addictive behavior or, you know, substance use problems, spending compulsions, sure, other kinds of things. Because I think that in our society and even in the clinical world, they don't acknowledge enough the link between attachment injury, attachment issues mm-hmm. with uh, what we might call addictive behavior. What do you say? Sounds uh, deep and painful. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. This episode is just going to be for patrons of the podcast, but first, I have a little bit of uh, intro here to talk about, um, and I'll have you introduce yourself again later, or for the first time later. So addiction, according to research, mounds of research, addiction is absolutely associated with insecure attachment. So insecure attachment is when you're mistreated in some way, either through being abandoned as a child or abused as a child, or even if as a child you had loving parents, but they just had a lot on their plate. Maybe they were depressed. Maybe they worked a lot. Maybe there were too many kids in the house, you know, which led to you getting a little neglect. Mm -hmm. You had loving parents. You always knew your parents loved you, but they just didn't have enough resources to go around, so to speak. So that's another deceptive mistreatment that can happen to people. So as a result of that, people will grow up with what we call insecure attachment, where people will feel as though they have a chronic feeling of of loneliness or hurt or pain of being rejected or just having to rely on themselves or something. And they also walk around with low self-esteem sometimes or Uh, They feel bad about other people, and they have a hard time trusting other people. They have a hard time reaching out to other people when they're hurting. They have a hard time really internalizing good relationships because they're always a little wary or they're distorted in how they see things. Mm -hmm. And this compounds the problem, right, because as they go into adulthood and they exhibit these sensitivities that cause their relationships to not be so great, then they extend the period of time in which they have not-so-secure relationships Whereas when you're raised without mistreatment and you have secure attachment and you grow up into adulthood, because you generally trust people, you generally know how to find people that are good for you, then into your 20s, into your 30s, you have even more good relationships that are secure and mutually gratifying. And that kind of builds on itself. Right. And so uh, the idea goes is that – so – uh, research has found that insecure attached people as adults uh, tend to have more addictions, more compulsive behavior. One study by Karimi et al. 2018 found that insecure attachment increases the risk of addiction by 40%. Jeez. That's a lot. So there are other things, obviously, drug abuse, internet addiction, gambling, this kind of thing. Lots of research. Every client that I've worked with who had substance issues or addictive issues had significant attachment issues oh, wow. um, in early in life, abandonment, abuse, or just general neglect. So, but in today's episode, I really want to talk about why that link is there. And I want to go over your life as an example of that. Is that okay with you? That sounds very 
useful to me. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carcana. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Humberto? My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I am a honeycomb repair person. This episode is only for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode is going to end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of our podcast. And when you do so, you'll get instructions on how to access this episode and hundreds of other premium episodes, which are arguably our best episodes. They're only available to patrons of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Do so now. Do it, do it, do it. Okay, so just a, a little announcement before we go into the content of this. I just want to remind everyone that we have a scholarship coming up, so uh, that the due date is, I think, June or May 31st, I think. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't remember. Go to the website. This is 2019. It's due in May or June. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> but it's a scholarship that is $2,500. So if you're a student and you need money to pay for bills, tuition, whatever, right. or you know someone in that position, please apply, because that's a lot of money. Yeah, and don't wait till June to find out if it was due in May. Yeah. Okay, so why would this happen? Well, I'm going to explain why this connection between insecure attachment and addiction exists in my view, and then we'll see if it applies to your life. Okay. So very simply put, when you are mistreated or neglected somehow as a child, you develop insecure attachment. And what also this is associated with is not knowing your emotions very well because your family didn't help you with your own emotions. When, when parents and families are uh, attuned to your emotions, tuned, attuned meaning they notice your emotional state and they respond appropriately, that is a very educative experience for a child because they're through a feedback loop between them and their parents, they're learning about their emotions. They're having a tantrum and their parent, their mom comes up and says, Oh, I see you're upset that you have to take a nap. And through very, you know, we're talking like maybe a hundred times a day, hmm. the child will have an emotional experience and the, the parent reflects back and says, I see you doing this and here's my interpretation of it. And the parent might say, you're still taking a nap, son. <laughs> but at least there's the, there's the beginning of like some emotional content to the communication. It could be overt, like I see you're angry, or it could be more uh, nonverbal, like the way that the body language of, the, of right. the parent kind of exhibits that you're getting that the child is angry. <clears throat> and through that experience, through that attunement, the child starts to develop secure attachment, trust for the other person, emotional re regulation for themselves. But they also learn that they even have emotions. Many people emerge into adulthood, they don't even know they have emotions at all, or they don't know what wow. their emotions are, even though they're having many emotional experiences. So, so all that happens, and, uh, and so when you grow up with insecure attachment, you don't know your emotions, you don't know how to regulate your emotions, you don't trust other people to help you regulate your emotions, you don't really trust other people to love you or to like you, you might actually have low self-esteem. Well... Eventually, often when you're a teenager, you experience pot, marijuana, alcohol, other substances, or internet porn, or internet itself, or maybe even gambling, whatever. And for a time, while you're doing these activities, you don't feel as bad. You still have those underlying pains and that underlying 
you know, distrust of other people, low self-esteem. But for a time, when you're smoking pot, when you're drunk, when you're gambling a lot, when you're buying a lot of things, when you're masturbating to internet porn, you don't feel it as much. You get a little pleasure with L- the pain. Or at least distraction. Yeah. Like you're just, it's a very, these are very intense experiences that can be and can really just dis- be very heavily distracting. And then your body realizes whether you're conscious of it or not, that this activity has a lot of benefit, does right. a lot of really great things for your stress level, for your self-esteem, because you're, you're not raising your self-esteem, but you're not aware of your low self-esteem. <laughs> right. So that really encourages you to repeat it. And again, a lot of this can be unconscious, but some of it can be very conscious. Like some people will say like the first time they took an opiate, mm. Oxycontin, that for the very first time in their life, they felt normal. Oh. Or the first time they drank alcohol, oh. they'll be like, for the very first time, I felt like I could go to a party and actually socialize. Wow. I could never do that before. And so sometimes it's conscious, but a lot of times it's unconscious. Well, guess what? When something takes away the pain, then you're going to do it. Right. And then the the habit develops. Mm-hmm. Right? It's really just that simple. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes intuitive sense, and it's uh, observable. <laughs> like, that that's how it happens. Right. So, let's start from the beginning. What relational traumas did you go through, Berto? Right. <clears throat> so, I've talked about this uh, before on the podcast. Uh, the first thing, of course, was that when I was a baby, from zero to three, uh, my parents' relationship was turbulent at best. Uh, I don't know the extent of the turbulence, but I know it resulted in a very nasty, nasty divorce where my mom left and did not take me with her because she was in her mind fleeing the situation, essentially. And I was left with my, my father. And so my what I imagine is that up to that point, there were some pretty traumatic experiences, not directly inflicted on me, at least not that I remember, but certainly around me. And I actually did have memories that were non-verbal, non-specific that I actually think may have been related to this. For example, for a long time, even into my 20s, but certainly when I was a young kid and in my teens and stuff, every now and then, I'd have this thing where I would feel like this purple mass, like a purple weighted gelatin or hippopotamus or something would just be like crushing me. And it had this very specific smell to it. And and, and it's like, and, and they had this sound like, it was like this kind of thing. When I spoke to my therapist about it, she hypothesized, and of course there's no way to know that, that, that it might have even been some sort of like, well, so actually, I think I brought this up, and she didn't disagree with my crazy thing. Was that uh, I might have even had this situation where when I when I was in the womb, right, like all these uh, loud noises and things are happening, and then as I'm born, these things continue, and then it creates this pattern of like something something's oppressing and it's loud and it's like, but I can't understand what it is and so it like and who knows but for whatever reason it was every time that would happen it would really scare me 
was like, oh my God, what is this? And it was, and it had to be very primal because there were no words or, or, or shapes or anything attached to it. So that was the, the, the first thing. And so, you know, the, my mom leaves and so I lose my mom. So asterisks to that, a lot of people will describe things that you're talking about mm. like that. I imagine a lot of listeners out there can relate to a, maybe not the exact same imagery, mm-hmm. but a similar experience of having a felt sense of a very deeply troubling emotion yeah. that they can't really put into words. And they know they felt when they were very young, when they couldn't put things into words. And they know that it's pre-verbal. Yeah. You know, it's just an image, it's an imagery or a sense that they feel uh, that's that's very terrifying. So, yep. go ahead. Right. Uh, and it was so specific, by the way, that I used to almost be able to trigger it on demand. And then slowly the years went by, and it, by now I only have the faint kind of memory of it, but um, but I know how specific it felt. All right, and so then my mom leaves, and my, my when my mom left, it wasn't like they separated, and then but I'm you know one weekend here, one weekend there. There was a period of time where I literally didn't know what happened to my mom because she left. She she told me, "Hey, I'm I'll be right back." She left me in our apartment uh, holding what I thought was an apple. Later, she told me it was something else, but and watching television. So I had this thing where I was like in front of the television with this like food and she left and then when my dad got home he was like where's your mom and i was like i i don't know she said she was gonna be back or something and then that was it and then days went by and i'm like where's mom where's mom where's mom where's mom i'm like three right like a little three-year-old where's mom where's mom where's mom and my dad's like i don't know i don't know i don't know like we're and then i'm like well we gotta go look for her we gotta look for my mom like, what if she's trapped somewhere? What if, you know, like a three-year-old logic, we got to go find my mom. And I'm sure my dad knew at that point, it was like, okay, she's abandoned us. But so he was really uh, upset and trying to figure out what was going on. And all this is happening. And it was this huge mystery. Like, what happened to my mom? And it wasn't until right. like what in my age, yeah, at that little age, you know, lifetimes later to where I saw her again. Yeah. You know, like months Honestly, I don't know how long it was, but it might have been a year. Yeah. So, and we've hypothesized before that your mom might not have been very attuned to your emotions prior to her leaving because right. given her overall personality and pattern, she exhibits a, a style of relating to other people that's kind of non-attuned, shall yeah. we say. And we don't, you don't have any memories of what she was like when you were one years old, but- all evidence kind of points to her not being super warm and super right. attached and super attentive. Yeah. And so lots of injuries there. Uh, you're, uh, she abandoned you for a long time. One could say that you never really got her back. I mean, you, you developed a relationship with her. You moved in with her when you were a teenager and yeah. have, have had a relationship with her since that time up in Seattle. Right. But that's very different than when you're, two, three, four, five years old. Totally. The little me never got mom back. Right. And I, I actually, I was going to say, I said at least a year. It was definitely at least a year because I moved back to Colombia to live with my grandparents for, for a year. And I definitely didn't see her during that time. Right. So then you were sexually abused, which doesn't help. Right. So then fast forward. Oh, and by the way, even before that, I'm, 
not only did I just lose my mom, then I lost my my dad for a year. Because he uh, left you with the grandparents. With my grandparents because he was in school. Yeah. Okay, so now I've got no parents. Actually, that's something I just now realized. I, I thought, well, I lost my dad later again, but I actually, from three to four, had neither a mother or a father. Yeah, well... You cognitively knew that they were alive, but choosing not to exactly not to be with you. And I was living with my grandparents, and now I was surrounded by love, but my dad and mom were not there. Yeah, that's that's dramatic. That's, that's crazy. Right? Yeah. And then I moved back, and then I, now I have this little stable house where they love me, and I move out of there back to the states with my dad. And you lose all those people. I lose all those people. So now I'm four. Or four and a half or something. And I moved to the States with my dad. And then I'm in New York for two years. Just with your dad? With my dad. No mom, no... No mom, no, no grandparents, no nothing. Yeah. Now, they visited once or whatever, but the point is I'm there with... Me. And then during that time, when I'm five, I get sexually abused by my 12-year-old uh, babysitter, uh, who, sadly, she was probably also sexually abused. And she was abusing me and, and this other little boy. And, and so this was yet another another trauma where I really looked up to her. I remember thinking how cool, how pretty she was, all these kinds of things. And I felt like she was introducing me into this crazy world that I didn't understand. Um, and so this is all happening. And I'm now in second grade in New York and my dad is really struggling and I'm really missing my grandparents. And so then I say, I think I say that, oh, I really miss my grandparents or something. He asked me if I would like to live there. And of course, I'm like five or six, you know, so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so then I move back to Colombia without, well, my dad flies down with me and stuff, but he, I stay there. He goes back to New York for another I think another year and they actually have to, you know, like, so I get to Columbia and it's really hard. I'm in a new school. I tried second grade in Columbia and second grade in Columbia was like third grade in New York. So they actually bumped me back down to first grade and it's just like, and I'm with my grandparents again, which is great. But by this point, my aunt was gone. So my aunt had been, my aunt from three to four had been sort of like another mommy because she was there in the house and all these things, but she had moved to the states. Right. So just tons of tons loss of loss, 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 a, loss. A, yeah, abandonment, attachment problems. So then you develop attachment insecurity, and as a young person, as a teenager, and as a in your twenties, what were some evidence of your insecure attachment? Uh, well, it, it seems like I ended up being a late bloomer for this. In that, when I was a teenager, like when I think back. Uh, I didn't really have, if I had any, any problems, it was, I had, I had a problem sitting down and like doing my homework, you know, I, I was very good at taking tests, but I really didn't have the discipline to sit down and, and do my homework. And we're talking about attachment insecurity. So, uh, like what, when you were a later teenager in early twenties, you've told me about being jealous and this yeah. kind of stuff. So what, what can yeah, you say? Yeah, I'm thinking, let's see. I'm living with my mom. So I, I'm 15. I've moved up to live with my mom and my younger brother. Well, one thing is I 
I didn't see my family in Colombia again for six years, but I don't, I mean, that wasn't my fault. But what I didn't do is I hated calling on the phone. So one thing I hated, I hated writing or calling on the phone. Um, it, it was too painful, I think. Yeah. And so that I, I couldn't really do that. And so we did talk every now and then on the phone, but that that was about it. Well, let's skip forward to your twenties. So you're in your twenties and you're starting to date. What sort of signs of insecurity? Yeah, the the problems definitely started. It definitely started when I went to college. I think so. I am a eighteen year old, about to turn nineteen, and I'm now with my second real serious girlfriend. I've had other girlfriends, but they were shorter. And this time, I have one that's seeming pretty serious. And I start being extremely possessive. How so? Very paranoid that, you know, she's... For example, she lived in a dorm that was a mixed dorm where one floor was women, the other floor was men, stuff like that. And I was like, you know, are you spending time up in the guy's floor? You know, bullshit like this. I remember at one point... The girls that lived across from her room, they put up a poster, like a Playgirl poster. Right. You've talked about this yeah, before. Yeah, and they, it had a little flap where you could lift to see the goods, you know? And when I walked in to visit her, I'm like, I see that. And I'm like, <gasps> and I'm like, did you lift the flap? Did you lift the flap? It's like, did you order the code red? But about the stupid freaking flap. Right. Okay. Well, so let's, so this is emblematic of probably a lot of emotional experiences for you, but let's real, really drill down on this, just this one example. Right. So you have you have attachment with this woman, yeah. this young woman, and you need that as we all do. But you really need it because you've never really had it, or right. you've had incursions on your attachment. So you, you know you really need it. You don't really know you really need it because you're young and you haven't been to therapy yet, and you know you're totally. not you're not really aware of your process at this point. Oh, and by, by the way, all my previous relationships, I didn't do any of this behavior. Right. So you're there and you were walking down the dorm hallway and you see this uh, naked picture of, right. a, of a man and you see a flap over the penis. And what does that trigger for you in that moment, do you think? I think it, it, the, without too many words, it was like, oh my gosh, if... She is interested in this poster, especially if she lifts the flap. I'm worthless. She's going to leave me. Right. Because, because uh, there's no way she's just – she's actually interested in me. It's so thin. It's so threadbare that anything will drive her away. Exactly. So even though all indications or many indications anyway were pointing towards – at least an 18-year-old version of a secure relationship right. or, or a loyal, at least for this month, relationship. Right, right. You, know, you weren't fighting. There wasn't any reason why she, you know, she wasn't complaining about you or anything. Right. And even though all that was true, you believed deep down that the, the connection was, was like one fragile thread that was holding yeah. you together. And if she saw some other man's penis... That could cut the thread. The poster, let alone. Yeah. Right. Like just yeah. a poster of a penis yeah. of a man she'll never be able to meet. Yeah. Could actually, you know, sever that very thin connection. Right. Because you don't trust. You, you just don't think, you don't, you don't believe, you have very, you have a lot of reasons to believe that people can leave you at any time. Right. 
but you don't want that because everyone needs attachments. So you're very upset. You're very worried. Um, how how scared do you think you were? Well, like, I would have. You know, at the time, I would have said, "Scared? I'm not scared. I'm just upset." Right. I was probably really scared. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, you know, and then and then it was as an example. You know, another very near to that. Uh, we were gonna go see a play, and. I'm like, oh, how are you getting there? Oh, or actually, she gets there. I'm like, oh, how did you get here? Oh, I got a ride. With whom? Oh, and it was these three guys. Like, these three guys gave her a ride. Oh, my gosh, I got so upset. Like, what? You got a ride from three guys? As if getting a ride in a car from three guys to go see a play with your boyfriend means she was literally getting triple fucked in the car by these three guys or something. It's like... But, again... Because you believe the attachment is one tiny piece of yeah. fra- fragile thread. Yeah, all you need is a ride, and, and we're done. Like, she's left me for three guys. Right. That <laughs> Now, you're not aware of this fear. No. You're only aware of your anger. Right. And how it feels like it's an, an injustice. This is in the borderline spectrum response, by the way. Right. If you, you know, ramp this up even more or more consistent, you might qualify for the DSM diagnosis, maybe. Um, and, you know, it's a distortion. It's Total. it's something like, who's, who believes that? You know, you're in college. She has friends. Some of them are boys. Some of them are girls. Right. She got a ride. I mean, it's, it's, it's so irrational. But it's, And it's also socially sanctioned jealousy, by the way, for men to be that way. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So, okay. Now, there are many other examples, but this is one, you know, one or two examples of your insecure attachment and demonstrating that you don't, your working model of relationships is that they're extremely fragile. And your working model of other people is that when they say they love you or they say they care, that really doesn't mean anything. Even if they're, even if they exhibit their caring, that really doesn't mean anything. They could leave at any moment. Right. Another working model might be is, it about yourself is like, unless I fight for a relationship, I won't get a relationship. Mm. I have to assert myself. I have to put myself out there. I have to, I have to demand, I have to make control of other people in order for me to retain a relationship. Mm. Otherwise they'll just go away. And now that I'm an adult, maybe I can start to exhibit that control in a way that I couldn't when I was three. Ah. So this is a lot of strife. This is a lot of stress. Right. That you're not even aware of because it, it, so so not only insecure attachment and neglect leads to uh, these sorts of reactivity, but it also leads to an inability to know you're being reactive. It also leads to an abil- to an inability to uh, have the methods to control or regulate your emotions. Mm-hmm. Like another person who wasn't abandoned to the extent that you were. They see the poster, they get a little jealous, and they're like, you know, they they notice, like, oh, boy, I'm getting jealous of this poster. Well, let's think about this for a second. Who cares? Like, I'm feeling the feelings, but I don't really need, I'm not, I don't really need to focus on that because... You know what? What? What's going to happen? She's going to leave. And even if she does leave me for this, this model, <laughs> that was the greatest riddance of, of all time, right? Like good riddance. Like if if that's if that if that's the poor sort of person she is, then I guess I'm better off knowing that earlier on. Um, and then afterwards, or even during, 
you're like, well, I know from experience that when I reach out to other people, they, they helps, it helps me dissipate some of this emotion. So you might even just go to your girlfriend and say, so by the way, like when you pointed to that poster earlier, I have to say, like, I got weirdly jealous, which I have to say is really dumb. But, you know, I just wanted to tell you that. And, you know, I, 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 so you're not going to run off with that model, right? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> right. Uh, no, honey, I really love you. You know, and it's like, it, that's the, so it's not like, secure attached people don't get jealous. It's that they know they're having jealousy and they have functional ways of mediating and mitigating their emotions and and reaching out to other people. Well, one thing that was especially ironic and weird is how opposite this person in particular was to the mental model I was forming for her. Because for example, in her case, uh, she was so goody two-shoes that she actually had not lifted the the stupid flap like which by the way like my personality by the time i got to 30 or whatever certainly nowadays would be like let's tape that flap open you well, know <laughs> one could say that by the time you were 30 as you know a progression of sorts was to overcompensate in the other direction that, that, that could be to become more avoidant and more cold that could be although i also felt so much shame so much shame for my behavior when i was in my in those young late teen early 20s that i was like oh my god but anyways the point is that not only would it have been a a ridiculous re- reaction in general but i was also projecting something onto a person that was in fact sort of the opposite of what i was imagining them to be well regardless of what they actually were like your working model needed to be applied and right. and perceived and so that's the magic of working models right. and of projective identification. Yeah. And when you yell at her, she's more likely to want to leave you. <laughs> which confirms my theory. Which is projective <laughs> uh-huh. identification. It's like uh, yeah. I have this internalized relationship of me being rejected for very small things. Um, I'm going to externalize that relationship. I'm going to reject her by saying, I can't believe you looked at the flap. Right. And that is rejecting of her. She ends up moving away because that's what people do and they feel like crap. And then, see, you know. I knew it. Yeah. Okay. So what sort of compulsive behaviors did you develop in your 20s to help you cope with right. those emotions in ways that, you know, because you didn't have any other way of coping. So right, right, right. What, what compulsive behaviors? Uh, a couple things. One was uh, not constant but when there would be parties or or things like that i would definitely binge drink okay so one was binge drinking um so when you binge drank or drank at all how do you think that helped with your emotions at the time it it was just a, a deadening of everything else and it was just well actually one of two things would happen now that i think about it it was either party time excellent or so it wasn't just the drinking it was the social atmosphere Yes. Like yeah. it was never like by myself. It was always because there was a it was with friends. Okay. Yeah. But one of two things would happen. And and when I was younger in my 20s, the more frequent one was like we're having a party here. So it was like a grand old time and I'm going crazy. Crazy, right? Um as I got older and got closer to my 30s, I started having these very depressive sometimes like it basically if my mood coming into the the binge activity was actually kind of depressive oh my gosh 
I would get very I would do very dangerous things while I was while I was drunk. Okay. So having parties in your early 20s and drinking was potentially very distracting and also helps you with your self-esteem because right. You can be the life of the party. People like you because of that. And maybe even think, whoa, that's my purpose. That's how yeah. I get people to love me is by being the crazy drunk guy at, in college. Right. And it didn't help that I was I was surrounded by by other attached, kids. Attached injured kids. Right. And who essentially felt the same way. <laughs> yeah. And so, we, you know, and, and, and part of the idea well, was... Bird, birds of a feather. Right. And part of the idea is getting drunk and wasted is what we do. This is what we're going to do. Well, it's also the culture of the time, right? Yeah. Um, and, it's not, and it's not the culture uh, of that age or really of any age, particularly for that age, to say like, huh, I have emotions. Maybe I should talk <laughs> with my friends about that. No. Um, what about spending? Right. So then the next thing that happened, actually, so the the way this, this occurred was that when I first started working, it, it was in high school. I got a job, you know, part-time job like most kids here do. Um, and I started actually getting money. Two things happened. One was I felt this feeling of finally, finally I have money, right? And And two... It was, and finally, no one's here to take my money because it used to be that if there was money, my my dad would ask for my for my money. Like I, I remember, you know, I would get money from my grandma, or whatever, and then my dad was like, "Oh, can I borrow that money?" And I'd, I'd never see the money back. Or the worst, worst ever was my final Christmas in Colombia. My gift for Christmas from my dad was three thousand pesos, three crisp one thousand peso bills, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is great." And the very next morning, so Christmas Day, right? He's like, "Hey, uh, c- can I borrow the the money?" And I and I was like, "Uh, sure." And of course, I never saw that money again. Mm-hmm. And so I had this feeling of like, if I have money, I gotta spend it because otherwise, it's gonna go, mm-hmm. it's going. And I also had developed another side of this, which was, I obviously I didn't explicitly understand or know any of this, but I had witnessed. My mom sending me clothes, sending me toys, all these things. And it was like, I think the lesson I was taking is like, oh, you can express your love via money. Right. So this is an important point that I didn't think we'd end up getting to, which is that the kinds of compulsions that we develop, the kinds of habits we develop are influenced by our life, particularly if they are directly related to our attachment injuries in the first place. So... When you were young, you were abandoned by your mom. Right. And then you would get these material items from her. Mm-hmm. And it would actually give you some indication that she loved you. Right. Which is something you desperately, desperately wanted. So it very much neurologically connected mm-hmm. material goods with maternal love mm-hmm. and, and attachment. So then later in life, you're thinking about you have you suddenly have money and you're walking around in a constant state of feeling neglected and unloved and unworthy. Right. And then you think, well, what worked when I was young Yeah. that I can do? Well, I re- and this is all unconscious, I remember getting material things and feeling a temporary relief right. from this pain I was constantly in. Well... Uh, and then you go out and you buy something. Do you yeah. remember like the first euphoria or distraction from your attachment woes that, uh, purchase? Do you remember the first one? Yes. Oh my gosh. Totally. So, so here's what happens. 
the first time that I, I am in, I'm in high school and I am making a little bit of money and I want a keyboard because I'm in a band and my brother has a keyboard, but it doesn't have the functions that, it, that I need. And I'm like, I want this keyboard I saw at the Ted Brown music and it's just so badass. And, and what kind this, was it? Was it it's a, a Yamaha PSR 500? Hmm. And it was so cool. So I'm like, I want this keyboard. And I tell my mom, mom. Did it have like synth sounds or like electric, no, no, it electric was, piano sounds? Yeah, it was like all the orchestral kind of sounds, but you could record multiple voices, record a whole song. So I ended up doing covers of Depeche Mode and Cure songs and writing my own songs. Had an onboard songs. sequencer. Onboard sequencer, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm like, oh my, and it had like 500 sounds. That was what it was called, the PSR 500. Mom, I need this keyboard. And, and it's 500 bucks. I think it was 500 bucks. She's like, geez, just 500. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, you know, it was, but it was like a, a top of the line kid keyboard, you know? Oh. And I was like, oh my God, it wasn't like a Korg 1000 or something. But in either case, my mom goes, okay, well, if you put up half the money, 250, I will pay for the second half. I was like, all right. So I saved up my 250. She put up her 250. I bought the keyboard. It was one of the best purchases of my life. That was great. That was a great lesson. Loved it. Well, a little time goes by. And I'm at a, another music store, and I see this Proteus, Proteus mod, module of world sounds. And it's this module, and it can do all these world sounds. And then my head starts having these little conversations that then would become very common as time went on, which was like, you really need this. You actually really need this. And I look at the price, and it was like 1500 bucks. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you, you really need this. Just world sounds? Yeah, it was world sounds. It was this rack mount thing. I was like, oh, my God. This what, is what world sounds? It was just like like congas and stuff? Oh, or? amazing world sounds. The thing I needed. <laughs> and it's like, you really need this. And I'm like, well, I don't have 1500 bucks. Yeah. And I'm not going to ask my mom. My mom would never say yes. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be able to pay for this at the end of the summer because I'm going to be working this job. So, but then my, my mind goes, well, yeah, but you don't want to wait till the end of the summer. What, isn't there anything you can do? And I go, well, I could ask my friend Aaron to lend me money. So I go to my friend Aaron and I'm like, hey, man. So I describe it. It's like this module and I really need it for my band and all. And I totally sell it. And he's like, all right, man, if this, if this means that much to you, I'll lend you the, the money. 1500 bucks. I think I might have had half. So it, it might have been that I had saved up 700 and he had a friend of a yours. A friend of mine lent me at least 700 or 1000 bucks. Oh my god. In high school. Yeah. That's a a fortune. Yeah. He had earned all that from from uh, his paper route. Oh my god. And so he Paper routes don't this, pay very much. No, but you know, he said he lends me this money and I'm like, "Thank you." And I go and I buy this thing. And I bring it home. And I'm like, oh my God, my life is about to begin. Here comes fame and stardom. And I'm like, okay, how does this work? I'm like, all right, I can plug it into power. Great. And then I'm like, it doesn't have speakers. Because I'm so dumb. I'm like, it's this rack module. Right. I'm like, and I have no idea what to do with this thing. You don't have any MIDI? I don't have speakers. Do you have MIDI cables or anything? I, I have a MIDI cable, so I plug in my keyboard via a MIDI cable into it but I can't hear it because there's no out cables the, the Yamaha thing doesn't have input to play through its speakers it's got a MIDI in but that does me no good because the thing is I can't even fucking use it <laughs> and I'm sitting there at home well guess who sees this thing in my room my mom she's like what is that 
and it looks expensive. You know, it's one of those rack mugs. She's like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's this new thing I bought. It's like, how did you buy that? Oh, uh, you know, I just went to Ted Brown. It's like, no, where did you get the money? Well, I, I asked my friend Aaron to, you, she was so upset. You asked your friend to lend you, we're taking this back. And I was like, no, I can't, you know, I, what I didn't say that was in my head is I cannot show my face at this store and return this thing and then have them think I am a poor, destitute loser who will never amount to anything in life. Yeah. Did she take it back? We went to the store. Thank and God. I had to take it back. Thank God. Dude. And I had to give my friend his money back. Thank God. Thank God, man. It was amazing. But, you know, unfortunately... The lesson at the time that I took was how mean my mom was. Right. So, so this is excellent. It involves so many different things. So, if I might, it involves the original thing that we're getting at, which is that you learned early in life that buying something will make you feel loved and attached. Right. But it also involves another whole part of this that we haven't got into, which is that at an early age, you developed a narcissistic coping, right. which is the notion that um, you're good, but also that you need to be seen on stage. You need yeah. to get accolades publicly or through some either performative thing, either th- by talking or by playing music. Or, or being the best math person. Because like my dad's thing wasn't mu- like, he's like, you're so good at math. You're so good at computers. You're so good. And so my thing was like, in order for my reality to come true, I need to become the greatest in the world at probably many things. Right. So you're looking in the store and you're looking at this thing and it looks real fancy. And right. it's such a good example because in the end, it's demonstrated you had no idea what this thing it was. It was useless. Yeah. You, you didn't know what sounds it made. You didn't know how to make it do anything. And I suspect, given the title, that it was a bunch of sampled uh, instruments yeah. that... You probably didn't need at all. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And so um, you're you're looking at this thing and you're thinking, one, this is all subconscious. By buying this thing, I will get that feeling I got when my mom sent me something. Mm -hmm. It was a little morsel of love. Uh, Two... I will be able to, this will, I need the, I, I'm not getting the public accolade that I, that I need to get in order to cope. If I get this very expensive thing, we all know that, you know, <laughs> gear makes us excellent musicians Absolutely. and makes us, you know, uh, famous. The Beatles, yes. Yeah, so I need to buy that thing. Um, I also, because I don't have the money, I'm desperate for someone to demonstrate that they love me enough Mm-hmm. to buy to let me buy this and I'm, i can't go to my mom because that's illogical because i know her policy on this but i'll i'll go to a friend and be extremely charismatic with him you right. must have been very charismatic <laughs> and i'm gonna i'm gonna like beg him and maybe even give him the message like look if you don't give me this money i'm gonna kind of interpret it like you don't really care about my feelings i might have done that impl- implicitly i certainly did not no, try that is, at all right this yeah. is all subconscious yeah yeah he gives you the money and you're like, oh boy, like this guy really cares about me. Yeah. The world is a good place. Right. It's not a horrible place. Um, I buy the thing, I bring it home. And so this is the part of the scenario where you have created a situation where you're, go- where you're setting yourself up to be abandoned through projective identification. Yeah. 
So if you would have thought about it, which you kind of did, you would have said, well, if I buy this thing, it, I'm gonna, it's going to be in my room. Right. I live with my mom. Right. I'm a kid. My mom enters my room all the time. <laughs> she's going to see this thing. Uh, if I don't have an explanation for this, she's going to get upset. <laughs> And what get and what and and she's going to reject me. Yeah, she's going to make me feel bad. And I need that. <laughs> and, and and so, but I'm going to do it anyway because yeah. I want to externalize this internalized relationship, even though it's her that right. you internalize it from. And on turn, I'm going to I'm going to force her hand to make sure she rejects me. The other layer to this it, that you mentioned is that early in life you felt poor at times mm-hmm. and interpreted that as a rejection from other people, maybe society or something. Oh yeah, so to elaborate on that, uh, two connections. So first of all, who did I constantly see borrowing money from everyone? Your dad. Right. And so in my house, uh, I was going, in Columbia, I was going to a private school and that private school was probably 80% wealthy kids. And me, I'm living at home with my dad who has no income, zero income, and aging grandparents who are living on a small pension. So there's no extra money for stuff. The only new clothes I get are, are from my mom, th- from my grandma through my mom. Or, sorry, from my mom through my grandma, right? And uh, so if, if I have nice shoes or whatever, it's because my mom sent them. That's, that's it. I have no agency, no way to say, Dad, let's go to the store. I want to buy clothes or shoes or anything. I want to buy a record. I have nothing like that. I can't buy music. I can't do anything like that. The only stuff that arrives at me is this way. So I constantly felt like I have no agency, right? And then I go to this school and all these kids have money and I don't, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, I, I don't have money. My dad's not a successful farm owner. I'm, like, right. I'm so, embarrassed. Right. So just to, uh, before I forget, this is a little off topic, but it's interesting that you internalize a relationship with your dad in which he borrowed money from you in very dubious situations. Right. And then you go to Aaron and you right. borrow money from him. Right. So you, he, you made him the you and you made right. you became your dad very early in life. Um, so, so there's that. Um, and the other part of this is, is that as you were interacting with all these wealthy kids you're internalizing another relationship of attachment where you're thinking, if only I had more material goods, right. I would be accepted by these people. And I'm being rejected by these people because I don't have enough things. And so as you start to get some money, you get a little taste of wealth, even though <laughs> you weren't there yet. Um, you wanted it all. And so you're, so you're going to buy this thing and you're like, if I can get this thing, I'll prove to all those people that I have things too, yeah. and they'll finally accept me. The other thing that you've brought into this, you know, maybe this develops more consciously later, is you're also kind of in this attachment issue with the with the store owners, with the right. with the clerks. You're like you're trying to prove to them, and this in a very weird, distorted way, in the same way you were trying to prove to the kids in Colombia. That I can afford this. Yeah. I'm a rich person. I'm wealthy. Who do you think I am? Right. And so a huge damaging element to this story is when you had to take it back. Right. Uh, that, you know, that was a, a big, that, that just 
confirmed that early hurt of you're a poor kid not worthy of our acceptance. Now, I will say one thing in my mom's credit, uh, because the weird thing is that even though it's only for three years, I think my mom did end up giving me some some tools that I desperately needed that without which I probably would have been even way worse off. As an example, this one, because you know what I never ever did again is borrow large sums of money from a friend. Okay. Never. That was it. I, I would I clearly would have gone down that route, right? And be like, oh that worked. Well I should never again. I was always like, no, if I'm gonna do so now I made as we know, and we'll talk about like, way more egregious. So but, tell us. Yeah. So so then I move on. Now I'm in college. Now this gets a little kind of more hectic. It's the summer after high school. I'm working a job that now pays me the big bucks because I'm a carpet cleaner, man. And I'm making seven fifty an hour on normal hours. And in overtime, I'm making like $10 an hour. This is crazy money. Crazy money. I went from making four seventy five at McDonald's, right? So... And then I have nothing to spend it on right now because I'm still living at home during that summer. I, I'm using my mom's car and I've already, like, I've got food and everything at home. So what am I going to spend this money on? So I go to the mall. Me and a buddy of mine, we're working the same job. He's like, let's go to the mall. I go to the mall and I find out, I realize something clicks. I'm like, ah, I can finally buy my own clothes. Think about this, right? I'm... Now 18 years old, and I've never picked my own clothes. My mom always bought my clothes. She was very happy and proud of it, too. I remember when I first arrived at 15, she had clothes waiting for me. And so I was like, oh, my God, now I have agency. And so I remember I went to Eddie Bauer. And and to be clear, my conceptualization is you wanted agency because you wanted attachment. Mm. Agency is also important. But in my book... A lot of our association or uh, drive for agency and power is because we can be more sure that we can uh, have the power and the agency to garner secure attachments with yeah, other people. Yeah, I, I buy it. And I think it was only exacerbated by the fact that in, in literal terms, I had never gotten a choice in what I wore. Hmm. Well, isn't that weird? Like a lot of teenagers are obsessed with, oh, I want to get... I mean, I won't say zero because in high school, I, I did remember I said, hey, I want that silk shirt or that rayon shirt or whatever. But it was always like my mom, like my mom provided and all these things. So finally, I have my own money and I can do this. Well, I start going slowly but surely kind of crazy with the clothes. At first, it's just, oh, I'll go to Eddie Bauer. I'll buy this. But it felt so good. It was like this rush. And it felt so good on at least two fronts. One of them was, oh, my gosh, new clothes that I bought. That's amazing. And two, that's right. You see this store clerks, store owners, people at the mall. Do you see what's happening right here? I am someone who affords clothes. I can buy clothes. Did you realize that about me? I didn't realize this started so early because I've heard you talk about it during your 20s when you actually were earning a salary and would spend a lot of, you know, your money there. I didn't realize it started when you were basically earning seven fifty. Nothing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it started then because I had money for the first time ever. And that paranoia, I, I, I'm sure, was there also of, I have money, I need to spend it. 
Interesting. Because if I don't spend it, it's going to go away. Yeah. And so I started spending and I just spend. And the, the main things I would spend money on, I, thank God, I, for some reason, had an aversion to drugs or anything other than alcohol and that I didn't want to drink by myself or anything because I certainly could have gone that route. Thank God I didn't realize that you could go gamble or something like this. Thank God I didn't think like, why don't I just go get prostitute? Like none of these things bubbled up in my, in my realm. So it was all two areas. And the first one, the first one that hit was the clothes. And then the second one that hit years later, but it started increasing was the music gear. Those were the two main areas. There were other things like because I felt that I needed to buy love uh, when I would be at a restaurant, I would just randomly buy dinner for a whole bunch of people, spend yeah. you know 500 bucks on a dinner because I was like, hey, they'll love me if and all these kinds of things. So, so I guess that was the other area is la- like lavish spending at parties and at clubs. So I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to bring up something that happened in our early relationship that sure. was a lesser version of everything you're basically talking about. And, you know, uh, we can take this out of the podcast if you want to, but um, it just seems so appropriate to say is you and I were in a band, people out right. there in podcast land might not know that we were in a band and you and I, we had, there were three of us main people in the band and we all were singer songwriters that's right musicians we all played guitars and keyboards and we all sang and we all we were like you know a shittier version of the beatles you know (laughs) and we were all pretty interested in we were in our 30s and we're all pretty interested in you know taking it to the next level right seeing like well what what can we do with music you know now that we kind of are a little wiser. We kind of know how to write mu- better music. We know how to work with each other better. Yep. We have better equipment to record ourselves, blah, blah, blah. You know, what, let, let's really try to make this happen. And, you know, we were pretty gung-ho. You know, it was a pretty exciting time uh, for the three of us. And uh, at a certain point, we were, you know, we're trying to get off the ground and things were pretty slow going, I suppose, at least slower than we were hoping anyway. Yeah. And you somehow met this guy. Oh, yes. <laughs> who was reportedly a advisor to other famous rock stars. Right. Namely the the White Tees or Plain White, white Tees. Plain White Tees. And he had advertised himself as like, look, if you hire me as a consultant, I'll make you Yeah, he, he, he had taught a, a songwriting class at a band camp, a music camp that I had attended down in California. And uh, he, he, you know, he, he, this class was very interesting. And in talking to him, I was telling him, yeah, I have a band. And then he, he, had, he said that. He, he said, he can, he's, I, I don't know how he promoted, but it's like, yeah, I consult for, for money. <laughs> well, he had convinced you yeah. that he could make us famous or... I mean, basically, that's that's what he said. But, you know, you had to pay money. Yeah. And so his fee was something like, it wasn't even that much, but it was a it's lot like to me at the time. A thousand bucks or something? Something like a thousand yeah. bucks. And so for the three of us, we had to split that, yeah. you know, according to you. And you're like, okay, everyone buck up, you know, 330 or something. Yeah. And so you come to the two of us, the two other bands, you know, two other guys in the band, you're just like, you know, this is what I want to do. So... For those in podcast land, realize like this is emulative of that very first 
uh, thing that happened between Berto when he was 18, when he uh, really wants to be famous so he can be loved and accepted, and is also in a process of money being a issue between relationships between people. Because he comes to, to me about it, and by that point, I had basically resigned, because I had been in many other bands before, right. and had those bouts of, maybe this is the time, you know? Because yeah. I was like in a grunge band in Seattle before grunge became a thing, yeah. and was still in a grunge band when, when grunge and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all those bands became big, and it was like, maybe because it was possible that we could be an, an, another one of those bands, hmm. not as big as those bands, but like Certainly. maybe like a Tad yeah. or a Posies or something, you know? And so I had gone through all that. So for me, and I was a little older than you guys too. And so for me, when you came to me about spending that money, one, I didn't have that kind of money back yeah. then. Uh, two, I was like, well, you know, he's probably just a shyster, you know, because mm. I, I hadn't met him. Yeah. And so you're telling me this guy's great. He's going to make us famous. And I'm, yeah. and I'm like, I don't know this guy. Sure. Anyone can say that, you know? And the other thing I was thinking was, I don't know if I care about being famous. Like right, I gave right. up that kind of when I was 24. And so, so I was pushing back. I was like, uh, I don't know. Because right. the way you were laying it out was like, I want to hire this guy um, what do you think? And I was like, well, if you're asking me what I really think after we kind of went back yeah. and forth, I was like, no, like, yeah. I feel like we could probably just brainstorm ourselves. And yeah. cause we know enough about music and the business, you know, and we could probably do this on it. We don't need to shell out a bunch of money for something that could potentially be completely useless. Yeah. And, and I said to you, I said, well, if you want to pay the money and consult with them, go for it. Right. Like, but if you're asking me for to voluntarily hand over my money for something that I don't want, <laughs> then I'm going to say, no, I right. don't want to. And you did not like that. You got real upset really? about that. Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. Like on the phone. So this is in the patron zone. So, you know, only oh. a small number of people are talking. This is one. I, of don't, the, I don't care. It's this fine. is okay. This is this one is of those concept. handful of moments that I can think of when there was some discomfort. That's crazy. I don't remember two. that at all. I'm on. The, I remember I, I had just, well, I was working on a, I had bought a table, a dining table at, at Ikea, mm -hmm. I think. And it was a very cheap dining table. Yeah. You know? And I remember I was putting it together, I think. And, and somehow like that was when you called us on the phone with you. And I remember you had such aggression that you either had or I perceived. Uh -huh. I tend to believe you had because it, I don't normally have what I had, which was a physical reaction of terror. Like the way what? you the way you get when you're you're feeling dominated by uh -huh. someone else, you know, and you just start getting kind of wigged out by it. Yeah. It wasn't like a conversation where you were just like, um, well, okay. If you're not into it, you're not into it. It was yeah. you were not accepting it. And guess what happened? I paid the money. After, you did after you cajoled me. Yeah. No way. Be, even though I was like, that's so unlike me. Well, because 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 well, okay. Actually, I'm saying you have remnants of it. Well, no, but it's actually funny. So I 
I even though I don't actually remember. I of course I fully believe you. It, even though I don't actually remember, I, I totally remember the the dude. I remember we paid money. I remember all of that. I didn't remember this piece of it. Very valuable. You know what might have been part of the problem is that you actually because when I met you, it was the tail end of my crazy money ri- ridiculousness. Mm. Because what happens is that before you met me. That conversation would probably have gone like, hey, I've already paid this guy this much money and we're already doing this because I was bleeding money like a madman at the time, right before you met me. Well, so that might have been another thing is that you were like, I need this thing because I need to be famous because I need acceptance. And I also... Uh, can't spend because in the past I would have just spent I, exactly. the money. Exactly, that's what I. But I can't yeah. do that this time. I'm going to be responsible this right. time and require everyone to pay their piece. And, and yet I was missing whether a piece they of the puzzle. like it or not. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think might have been happening. Is that at this point in in my development, I had crossed over that bridge of, oh shit, I fucked up all these years. I didn't know how to handle money, and so you very might may well have experienced me trying to be responsible in one area and not realizing that I was being unaware of like, I am bullying my way into this thing. So sorry about that. My apologies. So, <laughs> I, I accept. I accept. I let go of it a long time ago. And we've talked to, now we've talked about every single incident. <laughs> I think it's five incidents that we can identify. There was the car conversation. There was Vancouver. There was the politic conversation. There was this moment. And then there was a moment you actually don't remember, which was at the Mars bar. Um, again, early in our relationship, it was just the two of us. Uh-huh. And um, you brought this up, right? But I just don't remember. Yeah, it. you just don't remember it. I, and we were talking about the band, I think. It was mm-hmm. something about music. And it was one of those kind of arguments, you mm-hmm. know, perhaps a little tipsy, yeah. where it just kind of kind of got dumb. You know? oh, okay. But anyway, so it, as you're telling the story about Aaron and about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now, just to fill in every... I'm like, oh my God, this is totally what happened, you know, yeah. back then. And I appreciate you taking full responsibility and I believe you that you care. So that's great. So just to inform everyone, uh, that consultant didn't do shit for us, by the way. And <laughs> Well, he gave us a series of assignments. Right. So the first assignment he gave us was, which I thought was an interesting assignment, was to identify a classic or a excellent pop song right. that we would like to analyze and look over to kind of pick apart so that yeah. we might learn from this pop song that we love. Well, I chose uh, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Right. And this is before that song had its resurgence. Right. At this time in like 2006 or something, it was kind of an obscure song that really only a certain age group knew of. Yeah. I loved that. That's my favorite Journey album. Escape, which is like 80 or 81. And I've always liked that song. And I uh, picked that song and because I I thought, I think I thought of it as I, uh, you know, when I thought about the songs that I loved and I thought about the songs that have like a perfect pop structure, I thought this is, this is a good example. And when I brought it to him, uh-huh. he did not like it. He was like, this isn't a very good pop song. Like he's like, but okay, we'll review it. But I, yeah. I don't think this is a very good song that you should be reviewing. So that must have turned you off. <laughs> well, 
he couldn't have been wronger. I mean, within yeah. three years, yeah. it was a top 10 hit again. Yeah, yeah. And then it was, you know, played on Sopranos. It was in Glee. Yeah. And it was, you know, now it's like a, a ubiqu- classic, a classic <laughs> ubiquitous hit. Yeah, a double classic. But back then, this was before its resurgence. And I just remember being like, really? And I remember actually feeling deficient because you guys chose songs that he liked. He was like, oh, yeah, these are... Like, I think you chose, like, Oasis songs or something. and I'm sure Shun did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I Do you, chose. You don't know what you chose? I don't know. Anyway. There's a lot of... It's funny. You remember a lot of details about this, which in my mind means you probably were really feeling it along the way. You know? And because and for me, I remember yeah. the broad strokes. Well, I had never paid hundreds of dollars yeah. Yeah. for a consultant for right. my for my art. Like, my art is mine, and I certainly yeah. will consult, so to speak, with my bandmates, but I'm not going to pay some Yahoo that I don't even fucking know right. to comment on my art. <laughs> this random fucking joker. I mean, who the hell are you to tell me about music? <laughs> like, you don't... And so, I'm, and because I had paid him, because you and Shun were so into it, really, I was just trying to play uh. along, and then I... The very first conversation I have with him is about and I'm trying to play along, you know, I'm right. trying to like play the game and like he gives me this impression like I'm a bad member because I didn't give him the right and then right. I just sort of turned off. I was well, I remember just going like I'm done with this guy. One of the things is that you and I didn't yet know each other very well. I mean, we had known each other for a while, but we hadn't We barely knew each other at the time. Right. We hadn't really like talked and like gotten no. to know each other. No. So we didn't have a language. I'm guessing we had known each other for maybe 4 months at that right. point. <laughs> so we didn't have a language to really communicate deeply. No. Yeah. Well, I, again, I'm sorry about I don't about think that. that's developed until recently, honestly. Uh, yeah, potentially. That, I mean, that might be true. Uh, I think it's gotten better over the years, but I, I think back then there were a lot of moments where... I guess I'm talking about even more superficially than that, just even when we were in the missionary band. There are many times you felt perfectly comfortable saying no to me or, or vetoing an idea or things like that because we had at least... Not maybe for super deep topics, but we had developed a way to like, well, kind of. That's interesting. Yeah, I think negotiate. Absolutely, I think you're right about that. But I think if I was to, you know, take a stab at this, which is hard to evaluate uh, given how long ago it was, I think you you had particular trigger points where Mm. you became really rigid, and I Mm. think given what you're saying about this, I think this was one of them, and I think the day before, the day after you probably did respond well to me when I pushed back mm-hmm. on other things. Yeah. Because I remember in those early days, I remember there was a lot of negotiating between mm-hmm. us three guys. So you're right. Maybe it was a specific... It was just like a, a specific yeah. trigger in that it was money involved. And also, I also think you were trying... You know what? This is me <laughs> throwing shit in there, so don't, you know, don't agree with this if it doesn't make sense. Is you were trying to impress him. Sure. No, I'm, I'm sure. Well, I, I know that's a fact because so part you, of the we reason, were trying to get his approval, I guess, is a better right, way right, right. Because part of the reason that for me this mattered was I had paid way more money to go to this camp in California, and this was one of the instructors at the camp. So I kind of looked up to him, right? And I'm thinking, oh man, if this guy can help us, and this he, could be. He knows the plain white tees. Well, I didn't barely care about them, but it was more like he's in the industry. You know, it's like. This guy could really take us places. And so, yeah, I wanted to dot all the T's and cross all the I's. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and so I'm sure that that was part of it. But, but, it, but the way you're describing it, I have a feeling that the other, 
the other factor involved was this turnaround where I was like, part of it was like, I no longer want to get used. I no longer want to get used. Yeah. And so maybe that triggered me. I'm like, oh, am I going to pay for everything here or, or something weird? Or, That's actually yeah. ringing a bell. Yeah. That, I think that was the vibe. Uh, well, even, though, even though I was saying, I don't want anyone to hire I don't this. want anyone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so the, the, the thing is, the, the thing we missed leading up to the time where you met me was that. And by in, the way, thank you for listening and, and apologizing. That means, oh, of course. It means a lot to me. Uh, you're more than welcome. So. What we were missing is that all those years leading up to that, I had been going through an increasing madness where I started I started saying, look, I'm entitled. I work at a good company. And now you're earning more and more money. Right. Because like, through, I, who through, would have known honeycomb repair is a big deal? Through your 20s, early, yeah, early yeah, yeah. 30s, you were earning a lot of money. Right, right. For that age group and stuff. And so I'm like, I, I'm entitled to what I'm entitled to. And, and so what would happen is I'm like, all right, what is my goal? My goal is to get famous doing music. Okay. Uh, and write a book and make a successful video game and repair all these honeycombs and do all these other things. But definitely do music, right? So I'm going to go and I'm going to buy the best shit I can get because that's the way to do it. So I would go and I would go online and I would order all these super expensive things. Yeah. Custom made microphones and preamps that were designed specifically after the Beatles' ex- oh. exact gear. But you don't even know the half of it because the stuff that you know about that we used to record our album was the remnants that I didn't sell because I wanted to keep some good stuff. What, what's the most ridiculous thing you bought? I had a blue microphone. Those big bottle, the b- big bottles. For how much money? That was five grand. Five grand. $5,000. For one microphone. For one microphone. That probably doesn't sound any different than... Not, that, uh, like not, a, not like better a f- than the other ones I bought that were way cheaper. And it's yeah. still way expensive, but way yeah. cheaper. Uh, I had bought preamps that were SSL emulations and all... And like everything. Like just everything. Now, I didn't keep all of it because some of it I Estimated would buy. Estimated at one point at the pinnacle, like cost, like retail of all your musical equipment. $100,000, dude. Oh my God. $100,000. It was crazy. And this meant for, that... For a gear that was, I, I have to say, in my opinion, indistinguishable from gear that would have cost $10,000. Maybe. <laughs> well, you, well, you probably might like the distinctions between this mic or that mic. But, well, but, but it, even if it were or weren't, it was not money I actually had. Hmm. It was money, like, it was money I had if my future was irrelevant to so, me. <laughs> so the attachment piece of this is what? Well, I was trying to do probably the self-love by buying things, get the love of everyone else by buying the music gear that will make me famous, hmm. and uh, definitely demonstrate to all those purveyors of this expensive equipment that I am someone who buys these things. Yeah. I am that kind of person that has this money. I'm a kid who's wealthy and goes to a private school. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So... By the time I met you, you had started to realize that. Yeah, yeah. Because so you by, went to camp and you got that red leather jacket. Uh, it wasn't the red leather jacket. It was a jacket that I ended up selling for half the price. So I bought this uh, kind of dark black leather with a big red cross on the back. Oh, right, right. And it was $3,000 jacket. Yeah, th- this was, in fact, I'm glad you brought this up. For clothing, this was the last straw? Draw? Straw. I was at the bottom of the pit on this one. 
I had gone to this music camp, and, and well, the, so just to back up, prior yeah. to this moment, had you already started to be remorseful or shameful or upset about your spending? Oh no, I was frequently remorseful and upset about my spending. Okay, so you'd spend and then. And this fervor, and then afterwards yeah. you'd be like, "Why did I right. do that?" But then there was a voice that would override that voice that was like, "Oh, this because you deserve it, and you can earn this, or you do deserve this. You so, can totally spend this." So money. you're real busted up. You had a lot of internal yes. conflicting powers. Yes, that's okay. Right. So then you go to band camp. So I go to this band camp, and uh, how many band camps did you go to? I ended up going one, two, three, three, at least three, maybe four years, but at least three years. You know. At first, I was going to make fun of you, but actually, it kind of sounds fun. Actually, that's the one thing. Even though it was pricey, the experience I had at these music camps was so awesome. And I really, I remember it fondly. It was a great time. But so, one of the things you have to do at this camp is do a performance. Actually, you didn't have to, but you could do a performance. Like so, at the end of the week. At the end of the week. So, I'm like, perfect. And I'm going to look awesome. So I had this song. Do you remember my song, She's on Her Own? She's on her own. Yeah. Remember that song? Okay. I was going to perform that song. Two things happened that week that are very apropos to this. One of them is I already had a recording of that song that I had done at Jupiter Studios in Seattle, and it sounds great. It's a, in fact, not only does it sound great, I, was, I sold that song to an episode of uh, an MTV show, and they paid me some money, and I still get little cents of royalties every year. Oh, you do? I get like 2 or $3 a year. Really? Yeah. Like it's on a streaming or something. Hey, whenever they show the rerun, I get a few cents or whatever. They show the rerun of that show on MTV. Uh, not. I mean, it was a Canada MTV, so like whatever. Who oh. knows? But every year, I check my ASCAP account. There's a few more dollars. Not like it's just like two dollars a year. Or something. <laughs> um, by the way, I checked our missionary uh, streaming. It's not enough to transfer money yet, but every year there's a little bit of streaming happening. Yeah. So it's like when it reaches a threshold, then we can cash in like twenty five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> streaming pays nothing man it's so sad anyways so i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my god i need to perform really well this week and two things happen one is i let this producer dude there not the same dude some other dude convince me that i should re-record this song and i'm thinking well but i brought this other song that i wanted to record at the camp because it's a new song and it's in this style that includes this latin music that i want to explore and stuff and i let them convince me no no just re-record this song in a slightly different style. And I'm like, okay. So I did, and I basically wasted my opportunity re-recording a song that actually already sounded good and now sounded different with lyrics that then I couldn't remember because I had just rewrote them. And you know how hard it is once you know lyrics to try to remember the new lyrics? Yeah. Impossible. But then the capper is, I'm like, well, I got to look amazing. So... I go. This is in front of the other camp. In front of the other camp. And uh, there were like people, you know, it was an, sort of an audition because there's people in the industry that watch or whatever. Oh, God. But it's not like, anyways, it's not that big a deal. It's just the kind of thing where it's like they might help you out a bit, right? And I'm thinking, all right, great. So I'm going to, I ask around, I'm like, where can I go to get some sick jacket? And they're like, oh, you got to go to this one You place. wouldn't have said sick back then. Whatever. You know, this Coolio jacket. <laughs> and they send me to this one boutique place, Rodeo Drive, dude. Rodeo Drive, where everything's like exorbitant, right? Yeah. So, so given your attitude uh, and your issues, walking into a store like that is like a death trap. It's because, a death trap. Because... You can't walk out of there it is, showing to all these clerks that you can't afford these things. Of course things. not. It is the Death Star's lock on the millennium, dude. Yeah. I'm in there, 
and there's no Obi-Wan. I'm stuck. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I'm Stay like... Stay on target. Absolutely. I'm like, can you show me an amazing jacket? This is not the jacket you're looking for. <laughs> well, they show me this amazing jacket. And yeah, the jacket was amazing. Totally not no! my style, by the way. <laughs> no! Um, uh, so they show me this jacket, which was totally not my style, but whatever. And I'm like, absolutely. How much is it? $3,000. Okay. Oh, the store is called Gaia, I believe. I'm like, all right. Absolutely, because you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I am someone who buys jackets like these. That's who I am. So I plunk down the card, get the jacket, and I'm on my way to stardom. And the capper is the day of the performance. I sit there with my my lyrics taped to the ground because I can't fucking remember the new lyrics that I was convinced of. And by the way, and why is that? Because I was trying to, uh, insecure attachment style, I was trying to be liked by these new producers and these people, so sure, I'll go along with your idea. And lack of self, because you weren't given enough space when you were young to Mm -hmm. develop your own emotional awareness and your own, what we call goal-directed behavior around who you really are and what you really want. And so when someone... no. (laughs) Well, when someone overrides you, you don't have a... A, a self to return to to be like okay I get that this guy really wants me to do this but I I do not I want to do this so you know it doesn't matter what he wants right you know and so we get to the performance and I do it and actually it goes well it goes so well that one of the dudes in the like the little panel of experts at the end says wow that was really you wrote that I'm like yeah that's really great now, I will say, the outfit is not working for me. <laughs> oh, my God, man. I, I realized it finally all came crashing down. It, it wasn't all the money stuff yet because I still had some hills to climb with the, with the equipment. But clothing-wise, that was it. It was cold turkey after that because the whole house of cards came crumbling on my head. And I was like, you... Oh, you sad person. You spent $3,000 on this stupid jacket. The time it took for you to go there, you could have been rehearsing your lyrics. This is so dumb. And so, you know, then I I realized, you know what I got to do? I got to sell this jacket. And I'm going to sell it on eBay, and it's going to go for half price after I just bought it. Oh, you know what else I did? I was so proud of myself for this. I fucking went back to Gaia with the jacket, and I tried to take it back. You know how hard that would have been? But I had reached that new threshold where I was like, this is, you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I'm the guy who takes these fucking things back to the store. So you know what they call (laughs) this in the addictions world? What? A moment of clarity. A moment of clarity, right. So when it's exactly the same when it comes to people who have trouble with alcohol. Right. So they're drinking all the time. And you described it really well in that, you had times when you had remorse, but you had another voice that was mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 this is worth it. You know, this, this is, we're, we're on the right track. Just keep going. You know? Right. Well, the same with alcohol. It's like, you know, people will, they'll wake up particularly hungover and they'll be like, oh boy, like, or they'll, they'll black out or they'll do something stupid or they'll, you know, spend their money or something. Yeah. And they wake up the next morning and they're just like, what am I doing? Like this alcohol stuff is too much. But there's another voice that kicks in, maybe not right at that moment, but maybe later, maybe the next weekend or something. Right. It's just like, no, 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 everything's fine. Just, just, just don't do it as much. 
Yeah, just so fine. Don't drink as much. Yeah, everything's fine. Like fine. like uh, uh, stick to just wine or whatever yeah. the voice says. Yeah, and then you know you just keep doing that over and over and over again, and then and then at some point, often what happens is there'll be a moment where the house of cards just comes crumbling down. Yeah, and that voice is not strong enough to to deal with the reality of the situation. Right. And for you, it was, you had already had this building uh, awareness of like, well, wait, am I doing something that's not helpful here? Like right. what? No, no, no. Just stay the course. Just in every, you know, just, material items will get you there. Yeah. Uh, you deserve it. You know, you want to be the sort of person who buys nice things. And then you're so desperate to impress these people with right. this song. And, you know, you come down to the judge and the judge is like, man, great song. And you're, and you're like, yay. And a part of you is, you know, the, the addict part of you for the clothes. It's like, see, see, and then the guy's like, but your outfit sucks. Literally the thing, like it was so perfect. It was like, it was, so, imagine if it hadn't happened that way. Yeah. Maybe that wouldn't have. Or if he said, I like the jacket. I like the jacket. Right. Yeah. So, Everything, it, you know, that voice could not contend with the what, what was happening in the, the moment. Yeah, it was like, you know, what could the voice have said? Like, well, he doesn't know anything doesn't about know fashion. fashion. <laughs> but he's the one who is the person you're supposed to impress the, right. the most. doesn't really matter what he thinks. Right. It's like, what does he think? That's right. the most important thing. Well, and it was also, I think the thing that helped was an honest skill that I had that was not addictive, that was positive, was rewarded, and the addictive thing was punished. Right. So then <laughs> so then you continued with at least some of the gear issues. Well, so what happened is in that moment, and it's so weird how this happens, this moment of clarity, that so, voice was silent after that, the, the yeah, clothing voice. Yeah. Well, and what you did was you're like, I'm going to kind of punish myself with yep. this. Like, I'm going to rub my own face yep. in this a little bit because I want this to be a learning lesson. Right. And people will do that with alcohol, too. They will, I mean, a different way of saying it is, you know, making amends. That's yeah. that's one of the reasons why that's one of the steps. It's because one could say you're sort of rubbing your own face in it, but another could say is that you're actually doing a moral thing. That's but right. one of the things you're doing is, like, by going to these people and saying, I'm sorry that I did these things, you know, right. these 20 different things, you're verbalizing like i did this yeah. because of my problem right. you know and, and so, so me that, going, that solidifies your sobriety you know right so me going to the store to take back the jacket and and which they didn't they immediately said it was a, it was the worst fear case scenario if you if, if i was still afraid right well the worst is uh remember when you were a kid trying to get well you know uh, no, or it, you must. You now I realize why you were rejected as a kid for the private school. I guess right. that would have been the. If but, they but, said that. For, I'm joking. If they but. literally said that, right? But 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 in essence, it, this was it, you know, if you rewind the clock two days before this, this would have been my worst fears coming true. What they do? So I come back and they literally say, almost with a sneer, like, uh, "We don't take clothes back," right? And so the previous me from just two days ago would have, that would have been it. That's like, I am worthless. I really can't afford this. And now they know it. And I'm, I'm like, instead it was like, okay. And I just took it and I w walked right out of there with my head held up high. And I went on eBay and I sold it 
for fifteen hundred bucks, half the price. I mean, it could have been worse. I could have eaten the whole three thousand, but I immediately well, I kind of wish lost. you still ha- had that jacket. Yeah, but I took a picture. I still have the picture. I'll show you. But I, I ate fifteen hundred bucks over, and you know, so I only owned this jacket for three days, really four days, and I ate fifteen hundred bucks, and that was it. And it hurt you. You paid fi- you paid fifteen hundred dollars to hurt your performance. Uh, absolutely, but but you know what? When I when I sold it through eBay, I was so happy. Yeah. And it never, it, the weirdest thing about these things is that it never happened again with clothes. Not once. Yeah, that's great. And now, it did happen. It, so I, 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 oh, the other problem, the one thing is that I, I thought because of this, I was done with the money problems. And then I, 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 I didn't know I was so vulnerable still. So I actually ended up uh, not realizing that I was about to enter an even worse, worse phase just not clothing related. Oh, what related? And that was the the music part. Oh. Because I went from like buying gear, buying things and stuff more than I should to then it just got ridiculous. Oh. And that's when I bought all the super expensive stuff. Were you in therapy? What year? 2005. Yeah. Huh. I, I, yeah, I think so. So you're beginning to heal. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so between 2005 and uh, 2000, yeah, 2005 and 2007, this was kind of escalating, 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 escalating. Oh, really? But, but the beginning of 2007 is when I started clearing up. And I, Was I, it because I, of therapy or what? Yeah, therapy absolutely helped. And then the other thing that helped... Uh, so I didn't have a moment of sobriety with the or clarity with the music gear as much as I did with the clothing gear. But what did happen was I, I don't I really dislike uh, the idea of being trapped. So I kind of have a little bit of a claustrophobic feeling. And the apartment I was living at the time, because this is before you met me, I was living in an apartment at the time, got so filled with equipment and boxes and things oh my God. that it started feeling a little bit like a hoarder's place. Yeah. And I think that really started scaring me. And I'm like, what is, what am I doing? And so, and so then I think that started unraveling itself. And eventually I just basically, you know, but, but I had one last big fall down, which was actually how I lost the most money. And this one is completely attachment based, and it was that I lent a lot of money to your uncle, to my uncle, whom I met in Bogota. Yeah, and 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 that, that, and it wasn't just him. I invested money in a movie idea of a friend of a friend, and I lent money to my uncle, and I, I, like I was thousands af- and thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, yeah, and I was afraid of missing out on this one stock opportunity that my buddy talked about. So I put a whole bunch of gamble money on that. So in the span of six months, I lost more money than I had ever spent on any of this stuff. Well, so it's interesting. Okay. So one way you're narrativizing it a certain way, which is perfectly valid. Another way of narrativizing your story is that you had a progressive illness uh, problem. And because you weren't actually addressing the underlying problem, Mm -hmm enough, which makes sense because it would be hard to do it quickly. You attain sobriety in one area, but it just transferred to It's another. like a different drug, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Now that I think, so you went from clothing to musical music equipment to, to just giving money away. Well, quote unquote investing, <laughs> buying money. Or, yeah. Sorry, buy, buying love. Yeah, because really that's what I ended. Isn't that weird? So we ended up back full circle at fine. I will buy my uncle's love. I'll buy this stranger, not stranger, but like this acquaintance's love and by what, investing in their movie. Was that Wild Ginger pay for all your employees around then too? That was, uh, that was earlier. But, okay. but I mean, that was the same kind of phenomena. And so I think actually now that I think And then you it, got real like, and then, so with therapy, if I might fast forward a little bit, yeah. and with really breaking the bank yeah. to the point where you couldn't actually even pay your bills properly, right? Right. Like, it, or it was starting to actually affect your ability to survive. It, it was just that I got down to the point where I burned through all my savings, and and I was like, okay. And not, not only all my savings, that be, all my savings before I got a job again, because I was trying to do my own thing independently, and then I'm like, right. and it got down to the wire. Right. And so it was actually like. Like if I do this again, if I go one more month, I could be homeless. Or right. Something. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think actually now that, so now that's that, real rock bottom. So you had a couple moments of clarity, but then your real rock bottom was then. Well, I, what I was about to say though, is I, I, in talking through it right now, I actually think the thing that got me finally was with, because of my uncle, because I think all of the threads finally came together mentally it was someone I loved that I wanted his approval, right? A father figure. And it was a lot of money. And I think when that fell through, that was kind of the equivalent of the jacket. And and for all of it, that was like the meta one. Well, and he it not only just felt... So you gave him a bunch of money because he was like, you know, convinced you that if you gave him a bunch of money, he... It's an he, investment. He right. would he would give you it back plus... plus, yeah, plus okay, interest. Plus it was a loan. It wasn't just like a gift. It was a loan with interest. Oh, with interest, right. And yeah. so he uh, not only gave you indication like he wasn't going to pay it back anytime soon and never did, but he also like distanced himself from you, himself yeah. from you. Like right. he stopped talking to you. Yeah, he would, he would go months at a time without emailing back. Right. So... Not only was it like, oh my God, I can't believe I just blew, you know, right. that, that amount of money, but it had the opposite, effect. but like he, he doesn't even really care about right. it. If the goal was to buy love. <laughs> yeah. So I actually think that whole experience and then having gone through the aftermath, because the aftermath was me then hunkering down and spending five years paying down debt and confronting my uncle and dealing with emotional issues and, and dealing with more therapy. And, and finally, becoming I finally closed up all those, all those holes. Yeah, I remember. And you became very different, yeah. I will say. Because, you know, prior to that moment, we would go out and stuff. And you were still in that mode of like totally. paying for everyone and, right. or not necessarily paying for everyone, but maybe sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you went to a point where you were just, you were like a regular person yeah. <laughs> who actually were, was like, well, I don't know if I can afford that. Right, right. Like you would <laughs> never have said that before. No, no, no. And, and sometimes you, you would just flat out say like, oh no, I can't, yeah, I can't yeah, afford yeah. that right now. Um, and I just yeah. remember being like, wow, like that's a new Birdo. And, and man, it, it, the pleasure that I felt 
when I finally paid down the last of my loans, like I never missed a payment. And, and when I, fi- I was like, oh, like I did this thing. How long ago was that? Um, that was four years ago. Wow. Up until then. Yeah. Wow. Four, three and a half. Or four. I didn't realize I that. I think three and a half years ago, actually. Huh. It was three and a half years ago. I when I finally, it took a lot, it took me, so the, the lowest of the low financially for me got to be in like the spring of 2009. Yeah. So it took me from spring of 2009 to 06. So basically, yeah, like not a decade, right? But it took me like. That's interesting. I mean. Seven years. <laughs> and if I might sort of reveal some other details was you from my perspective, took a step back in your uh, lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Like your the place you live. Totally. Your automobile and yep. other kinds of things. Like you regressed to, you took, you. it looked like you took a step back. Absolutely, yeah. You know, in terms of you, you, you were no longer in a house. You right. were in, a, in an apartment. Right. And that, it felt so good, dude. Yeah. I mean, that's the weird thing. To, to like, to like, why? Why did it feel because good? Because I realized that none of that stuff is who I am. Yeah. None of that stuff really matters. Well, so that's the, that's the other thing I want to point out to people out there, is that you are not an extravagant taste person. Like, right. you, you have extremely down-to-earth... Uh, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you can get fancy sometimes with things. But for the most part, you're extremely regular. Yeah. You know? I drive a Honda. Yeah. <laughs> like, like even the nice house you had, the, the humongous house you had, yeah. you never really furnished it in a fancy way. Right. You know what I mean? And I remember there were entire areas of your house that you never really even did anything with. Right. Like, I remember your dining room had this fancy... Uh, like China set area where mm. you could put fancy things. Yeah, yeah. And it was empty. It was empty. <laughs> like you didn't have anything in it. And you lived there for years. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, for a fancy guy who has fancy things, there are parts of his life where he's like- Totally uninterested. <laughs> not fancy at <laughs> right? all. Yeah, that's like, And true. so when you took a step back, you didn't care because it's not really right. in your nature to care. Absolutely. It was a total- superficial imposition on your personality, all this extravagant spending. Well, you know what I started being able to do? I actually started learning what I like. Truly what in your your heart, the the, the self. So you actually, for some unknown reason, because it's stupid and bullshit, haven't been to my new place. But when you do, you will see I have this shelf. It's a bookshelf. And on one bookshelf... I have little representations of all like my favorite things, like the Beatles and Sandman and things like this. You kind of had that in your old house. I, I do, but this time I really spent some very thoughtful time curating it. And and then as as I was going through all these processes, I realized, ah, okay, I don't have to own everything. There are some things that actually make me happy that I do want to own. Other things I could just rent or borrow and not buy at all, like, you know. Um, and then the other thing that I started finally doing, because it's funny you mentioned furnishing, is I finally started saying like, oh, maybe if I have a, a house, I need some furniture. And let's buy some good, solid furniture that will last me a long time and will be like smart, right? And then it, this all started actually bringing me happiness. And I went from like, okay, 
maybe if I buy the furniture on this credit card, next month I could pay. I went to like, oh, I saved up the money for this furniture. I'm going to use that money to buy the furniture because I saved it for the furniture. Congratulations. And congratulations to your therapist. You you know, we've told the full story and you've you've managed. You know, we also want to mention that you had a lot of secure relationships in your private life that helped, obviously. Um. And to be clear, the reason why I haven't been to your house is because you haven't invited me. No, I know, and it's and it's a complete egregious oversight. But I, I did want to mention one you thing. You lived there for how long? Two years. I've never been to your house. How many times have you been to my house in those two years? Well, that's not fair because we record here. <laughs> okay, aside from the podcast. <laughs> many times, many times. Yeah. The thing is, I don't throw parties So I just want anymore. everyone to know that Embarrow's a bad friend. And I am a bad friend. Either I, that or I'm a horrible person and no, no, Embarrow no, no, doesn't no. like me. No, 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 that's not the case. But I, I, I did want to point out one more thing. Um, Not that I have any feelings about it. I, I, it sounds like you don't. I don't. I'm joking. You do, and you should. I, you come here all the time, and I actually, I'm a homebody. I like it when people I know. come to my no, house. It, it, it does seem weird, though, that like very ancillary friends of yours have been to your house, and I've never been. Right. There, there is a reason for that, which... You just don't like me as much. No, it's not that. <laughs> There's a reason, which I can obviously explain to you once we're done recording, but it has nothing to do with you. But I, what I will say... It's because I'm this. Asian and your neighborhood doesn't like Asians. Exactly. <laughs> I will say this, bro. I have you to thank in large part for my growth during those years. Really? Yes, because you were an, a really good role model. Oh, because you have to understand, as as we've pointed out before, a lot of my closest friends were also damaged damaged people, oh. and so when I looked around at my closest friends, I'm like, well, I mean, they've got their problems too, so maybe I'm not doing so bad after all, right? But one of the things that I saw when when you and I actually became friends, especially when we played in a band together, and then when we started doing the podcast, is I was like, I couldn't elicit, you know, as much drama out of you. You know, in fact, probably the reasons we got into those fights was because of that. So I'm like, where's the drama? Mm. I need drama in my life, you know? Interesting. And and then I kept seeing, I'm like, oh man, he's got things figured out in areas that I didn't know were areas. And so it was like, and then you would say things or I'd see you. So, so I really think that there were many times where it inspired me to be more responsible or be a little more mature about certain things from watching you operate and be my friend hmm. so thank you i really appreciate it oh well you're welcome that's why i don't invite you to my house <laughs> <laughs> i that's interesting you know i have to say though like there's a part of me in this is nothing to do with what you're saying right now which is really sweet like i'm interpreting that as like kirk is boring you're not saying that that's not what i'm saying but like no because he was it was even in times where we were out in crazy fun times okay it, it's it was just more of a but no, I, I get it. I'm just, you know I'm just saying I'm being stupid. It, but like, yeah. I, it was, oh, I guess I don't have to be a disaster. Interesting. Yeah, because when I think about a lot of your friends, whom I love as well, there's, yeah, more, there's drama. more attachment injury. Yeah, yeah. And more, you know, like if they were sitting here, we, would ha- we could talk for hours and hours yeah. about, right. you know, their issues. Right. And it's not their fault because... They were more poorly mistreated. It's not your fault. Yeah, not your fault. I get it. I don't, know. Don't do this to me, man. <laughs> not you. Not you. Um, man, Brienne scene with. <gasps> I was in tears, man. Let's talk I about... couldn't help myself. They they got me. I'm like, oh. I was oh. so so. This episode's gonna come out 
uh, well after episode two came out of Game of Thrones the last yeah. season. But I just have to say that I was basically crying half of that episode. Yeah, it was really touching. So not only the whole Brienne Jamie situation uh, when she gets knighted, but also when she stands up for him yep, and, and when it, she defends him because he would have gotten killed. He was on his way to getting killed. But just looking at Jamie, at Jamie, the the really great thing about Game of Thrones that they do so well is the directing and the acting and the production, they do it with facial expressions. Yeah. A, a lot of the communication, if you just look at the script, I'm guessing it's pretty bland. Yeah. But the intensity or the emotions expressed, like Jorah Mormont, for example. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. He hardly says anything. <laughs> but he has expressed so much emotion and story right. through his face that you just know it's behind. He's in the, yeah. you know, there's things happening. But yeah, like... No, they uh, really do. And, the, and all of them, Cersei, uh, what's what's his name? The Peter Dinklage. Of course. Um, all of them do it. Yeah. And so uh, the other, uh, what was I going to say? Well, um, you were talking about when, when he's getting saved oh, by her and so, his well, face is... So uh, Rebecca Bloom, a friend of the podcast, sent me this mashup of every scene or snippets from every scene involving Jamie and Brienne from uh-huh. the very beginning uh-huh. uh, without this current season. And you, you know, I, I wonder if in five to 10 years, what most people will remember about Game of Thrones is Jamie and Brienne. Hmm. I wonder. Interesting. Because their story is so interesting. Yeah, it really is. Like the story of Daenerys... Not that interesting. It's it was interesting to watch. It's linear, <laughs> but it's not like it's not. There's not a lot of huge depth to it, you know. And she hasn't lost. Well, she lost. What's his name? Drago. But she lost things. Yeah. You know, Viserys, and there were things. But to me, it doesn't. It it. She's she's very focused on being queen. Right. You know, and that's a great story. But it it's hard to relate to. Yeah. You know, us normals. You know. Yeah. But we can all relate to redemption, to love, to respect, to honor, to well, uh, dude, friendship. Absolutely. And to think that in that same episode, we were sitting there crying and rooting for one guy who pushed a kid off a balcony and another guy who burned two kids alive. Yeah. I mean... And- like chopped off their, I mean, uh, one of their like uh, battle guys' heads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was listening to a podcast talk. Now we're just going to talk about Game of Thrones for a bit. Um, they were talking about you know the episode, and they're like, I don't get it. Like, why was Sansa so ready to hug Theon? I mean, Theon was yeah. didn't he do terrible things? And I'm listening to the podcast. And I'm like, you obviously weren't paying attention, or you don't remember what happened. I mean. <laughs> You know, just to talk, because I need to say it out loud because I wanted to yell into my podcast (laughs) machine, is, yeah, when Sansa first ran into Theon again, as Reek, by the way, at Winterfell, because Ramsay had taken over, she hated Theon. She she hated him, of course. Why would, you know, she he betrayed everything and, you know, gave him a lot of shit for that. But then over time... She she clearly saw that Theon had been uh, broken yeah. by Ramsay to the point where 
he was now this other creature called Reek. Yeah. In the books, it's even more stark because Reek looked different. Oh. Like Theon in the show, he looks pretty much the same. In the books, Reek looked indistinct. He was like emaciated mm. and his hair had gone all you gray. You kind of tell that. He lost like most of his teeth. Like oh my God. really just scars all over his yeah. body. And so she's looking at him and she's like, what a pathetic creature this guy yeah. has become. Right. And she saw how terrified he was and how broken and beaten he was and how he was treated. And she's like, we're in the same boat together. Yeah. You and me, we're the main punching bags for this Ramsey guy. Yeah. She clearly saw that Theon kind of cared about her and cared about her plight. You know, it's the one kind of shining thing of humanity that he still had was like he cared about Sansa being abused by Ramsey, and San- Sansa knew this. And then he saves her life. Theon right. saves Sansa's life and then helps her escape. Right. They run into the woods. And the dogs are chasing, you know, and they're about to get eaten by dogs and killed by Ramsey. Theon says, hide here, Sansa. I'm going to run ahead as a decoy, and they're going to kill and eat me. But they won't, maybe they won't know any, you know, they won't catch you. Right. He sacrificed his life in the moment at a time when it was over. There was no hope. And he sacrificed his life for Sansa. He didn't say, let's both hide. He said, you hide. I'm going to run out in the open. He almost gets run down. Brienne and Pod, out of nowhere, show up. They had no idea that Brienne would be there. Brienne, you know, proceeds to cut everyone down in this beautiful fashion. Very satisfying. (laughs) And then, you know... So anyone wondering why Sansa kind of <laughs> appreciates seeing Theon? Yeah. You know, like, I. now I know when people listen to us talk about things we don't know that much about, why they hate us so much. <laughs> because when I listen to ignorant people talking about Game of Thrones... You're like, Arr! And I'm like, why are you talking about it? Like, Rage! The podcast I was listening to was put out by Slate. Weird. Like, this isn't just some random That is pod- not a random podcast. Like, Slate, these people have funds and resources to actually get at least one nerd on the panel who wow. knows the details. And all three of them are like, yeah, why was why was Sansa being nice to Theon? That's crazy. So this- I apologize to all listeners out there <laughs> every time that we've butchered something and you've wanted to throw your phone at the wall, because I know now how that feels. <laughs> Ah, uh, wow. Cathartic episode. So, in summary, Berto, how does it feel to have this in-depth talk into attachment and your spending issues? This is great, man. I really enjoy doing this because it. every time we have conversations, it is like therapy. It helps me cement the lessons I've learned. I actually saw a few things through a few different angles today that I hadn't even realized ever. Like, for example, when I said that, oh... When I moved back to Columbia when I was three, I lost my dad again. Like, like I, I, things like that that seem so obvious that don't like connect, um, and many other little bits that you were pointing out and, and things that that help me reaffirm connections and make points clearer for me. And that's always really great. And of course, my hope is that through my story, even though it won't be identical to the stories out there for you listeners, 
that hopefully you can see some patterns that you can identify and be like, oh, either I've dealt with that and I can relate or I'm dealing with that and I can relate right. or I know someone who's dealing with that. So I'm glad you're bringing that up. So not only obviously for people who suffer from spending it uh, compulsions, would they probably draw some connections and feel right. some help in you self-disclosing your path and your pain, but also... Uh, so to help people maybe translate to other things, obviously gambling could be easily fit in there, but alcohol or marijuana or other substances, all you have to do is like replace all that with like the same sort of pattern and escalation of substances, but it, it wouldn't be the, the same cognitive thing, right? Cause right. for you, it was like, I need clothes because that'll help me be famous and that'll help me look fancy. Cause I yeah. want to look fancy. Obviously people don't use pot because they want to be fancy but the 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 substances i guess the angle there to insert into what berto was talking about so you might be able to relate to the path because the path is i think universal is when you're taking the substances it just made you feel better yeah and then there's that other voice and then but eventually there becomes consequences but there's that other voice that berto you you start talking about that starts like telling yeah. you no 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 Everything's fine. Stick with the plan. We're good. You know, don't, you know, don't pay attention to the consequences. Yeah, sh- 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 Everything's fine. And then something really horrible happens and you're like, okay, uh, no more hard alcohol. I'm just going to drink wine, i.e. Right. I'm just going to buy musical equipment. Right. And like, you know, and then eventually you really hit bottom and then you really, and you're in therapy at the time. Yeah. So you had that, you know, cause if you weren't in therapy at the time, I'm guessing it there would have been some other thing that you would have done. Yeah, totally. Um, and with, with alcohol or other substances, there tends to be an escalation where it tends to get worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. over time. But One thing that I, I, I did want to add, because I just realized that I, I didn't mention it this time around. I've mentioned it before. But uh, related to that voice, so one of the things that would happen sometimes, no, actually all the time, when I would be at a mall, this is when I was still dealing with the clothing stuff, I would walk by a certain like expensive store and I would have these kind of conversations in my head where it's like, Hey, I should go in and buy, I haven't bought new shirts in a while, even though it might've been a month. You know, it's like, I haven't bought new shirts in a while. And then a little voice going, you you probably don't need shirts right now. But then this other voice going, uh, let's, let's just walk in. And again, these aren't like explicitly literal voices, but they are there. And I walk in and I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, what do you have? You know, and like, what do you have that's right. uh, really new? So, and, uh, so to translate, it would be like, hey, it's noon. You probably shouldn't be drinking. Uh-huh. You know, well, you know, just have a sip. Or how about just go to the bar and get some fries. You don't have to drink. Right. Like, it's okay. Right. You know? and so then, the voice is sort of leading you into it, knowing full well what you'll eventually that's do. That's right. And then, and let's see how we can correlate this one. The The second part is once I've gotten... All these clothes are being shown to me, right? Oh, and, and you know how the salespeople are. Oh, you know what would go really well with this shirt? Let me go get you this pair of pants. Do you have any belts? Right, like this kind of thing, right? Was that part of it too, the clerk relationship yes, with you? absolutely. Like getting served? Absolutely. And yes, and being like, oh yeah, I'm someone who gets served and, and buys all these. So I'm sitting there. The next part of the voice conversation that happens is the clerk is going to go get this other thing. This little voice is like, hey, listen. Just, just at least draw the line here. Like you don't need, like just one shirt. Like just buy the one shirt. Let's do, we don't need more shirts. And the other voice literally kind of like, shh, 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 shh,
We're not going to have this conversation. And at most saying something like, you deserve this. Like, stop it, you know? And it's kind of a paralysis because like there's this little person inside of me paralyzed going, I have an opinion here and I don't think we should be doing this. And then there's that other voice going like, quiet, quiet. It's almost like an abuse, you know? It's almost like sexual abuse or some kind of abuse. Like, no, no, this is just relax. This is just relax. It'll be over soon. You need this. You deserve this. Oh, God. Yeah. It's like, imagine two people in your head, one of them abusing the other. Yeah. That's interesting because I knew someone a long time ago who had a very similar metaphor. She, she was, she had problems with alcohol and she would talk about, she had this demon Mm. that she even would jokingly refer to. Mm-hmm. She'd be like, oh yeah, well, you know, the demon is really wanting me to drink a lot today. Uh, and the demon would also tell her to stop dating nice boys and only mm-hmm. date, because the demon would be, the demon was sort of self-hating yeah. itself, but also was like hating of the, per- and, you know, very influential. It's just like, well, we both know you're not going to date the the good guy. We both know you always, you know, that was her way of, mm. of, putting voice to that yeah. exact thing. And it's, it's maybe it has to do with being abused in ways where you've internalized that abusive voice and it just hounds yeah. you in ways like, no, 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 you shut up. Yeah. The, the real you, right. you don't know how to do these things. We're going to do this. We're taking over. Yeah. Here. We're taking over. Yeah, yeah, dude. Well, I'm sorry you went through that. Yeah. But, uh, I am happy. I'm, I've, I, I can honestly say that uh, had I not been through all the therapy and all the hard lessons and then having some good friends and some some positives, uh, it would have ended up pretty badly. <laughs> and then I think I lucked out. I lucked out that I ended up at the other side of a, of a place where I'm now certainly better than I've ever been. And Well, you say luck, and, but I, luck has nothing to do with it. I mean, luck has something to do with it, but... A lot of it has to do with you. I mean, capitalizing on luck too. I mean, you know, there's a why. There's several whys in every road right. that you could have taken, um, and you tried to cultivate secure attachments. You secure attachments with people you could have walked away from. Right. You uh, made sacrifices. You went right. to therapy. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. yeah you, don't get me wrong. I'm super proud of you. Took ownership. What I did. Of, you know, you've never, to my knowledge, blamed anyone for any of this stuff, you know? No. And, uh, you know, that's that's all your choice. Right. And you, there's reasons to not do that. Right. That being said, hey, can you lend me a thousand bucks? <laughs> there's this... <laughs> I want to say, like, you know, you and I, we've had episodes where we've gone into depth on things before, but I, I think this was like a whole other level, and I, I, feel, I feel closer to you. Yeah. I agree. This was... Uh, topics we've talked about before, but it was good. It was very in-depth, and it, it felt uh, great. And I want to return the thanks in that, you know, I'm not um, uh, perfect, <laughs> as, yeah. as you know. The, But I know, and I need secure attachments, too. This isn't a one-way relationship, right. is my point. And right. I have injuries that I have healed from from our relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've known subconsciously and consciously for a long time now that we'll always be friends. Dude, you're making me tear up. 
Well, they, you're going to make me cry too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What is this? Like, uh, Maury Povich or something. <laughs> oh All right. Boy. Take care of yourself. You fuckers out there because <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs>